You are listening to the Zookeeper Stories Podcast with your host, Matthew Price. The goals of this show are to share the stories of animal care professionals around the world, give advice on how to get to the field, and share information that will help out new zookeepers. One of the most common questions people in our field are asked is, how did you get your job? I hope to shed some light on that question and many more by investigating the origin stories of the people on the front lines of the animal care world, the zookeepers. And welcome back to another episode of the Zookeeper Stories Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Matt Price. It's been quite some time since we've had a show, you guys, but it's been really difficult to find guests, unfortunately. So uh, as I say at the top of every show, if you guys want to come on the show and tell your story, please do so. But today I actually have a returning guest, my first one, Ms. Ashley Roberts. We had her on way back a few episodes ago. And she had, was about to go on a keeper exchange to Australia, to the Healesville Sanctuary, <laughs> uh, where they have a lot of Australian natives uh, and things like that. So we are actually back today to talk about her experiences there. You guys got an intro to what her background is and how she got to be a zookeeper in the first episode she was on. So this one's going to be a little bit different. We're not really telling her story so much. We're telling her story about what she did and what she learned and everything she experienced in Australia. So... Welcome back, Ashley. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm good. How are you? Doing great, man. I'm glad you were uh, available for this. So we're just going to dive right in. Uh, so I guess just as an introduction, just kind of tell us about what you did, where you went, and you know why you went. Yeah. Um, so I did a zookeeper exchange uh, with a young lady named Monica. And uh, she's from the Hillsville Sanctuary, which is, uh, there's three branches of Zoos Victoria in the state of Victoria, Australia. So they've got the Melbourne Zoo proper, and then they've got Werribee Open Range, which is kind of like their equivalent of our safari park. And then they have Healesville. So it's about an hour or so northeast of Melbourne, and it's all native species. um, And it's it's a smaller facility um, in size and whatnot, but uh, it was just really amazing really beautiful area really amazing animals uh some of the best people made lifetime friends there so it's it was really really cool that's awesome man um so tell us about some things that you worked with there because i bet there's a lot of things that they have there that we certainly don't have at our um, zoo or really any zoo in the country yeah the the biggest uh, the one that the biggest one that comes to mind right off the bat was platypus was getting to hang out with a platypus and like they have this really amazing um, interaction there that I don't think they do anywhere else in the world where you actually put on waders and get in the water with the platypus. Like and the guests? Pl- it's booked like a long ways out and it's very expensive but yes they have wow. a couple of platypus who are trained enough and desensitized enough to where these people can put on waders and get in a pool, the keeper's there, and the platypus swims up to them, and they get to rub its belly and all this stuff. Holy crap, that's awesome. Yeah, it was really neat. But since um, Jess Thomas is the primary keeper for the platypus there, she's also the stud book keeper, and she's writing her doctoral thesis on platypus um, biology and all that stuff. So very, very knowledgeable and... um, she, I got to shadow her a little bit, and she took me to meet the um, the platypus, and it was just, they're fascinating. 
animals. It was... Talk a little bit about them because I know you know we have we have listeners that aren't zookeepers and don't they know they're buck duckbill platypuses, but they're also a, an animal called a monotreme. So like, what what is a monotreme and like why are duckbill platypuses special? So monotremes are a really unique type of mammal that lays eggs and. Usually mammals, we're placental mammals. That's that's the deal. We have mammary glands to nurse our offspring. That's why we're called mammals, basically. But these are just very, very old. And so there's platypus and echidnas, the long-beaked echidna and the short-beaked echidna. And I got to work with echidnas while I was there as well. And they're just ridiculous. I saw a, they had an echidna puggle that had been orphaned and they were raising it, hand raising it. And so watching her, cause they, they don't actually have teats. So they have a little patch of skin that secretes milk. So weird. And so it, this little echidna takes its beak and starts sort of scooping at the, the skin. And so this keeper is sitting there, the, their hospital keeper, and she's got this little puzzle. Its eyes aren't even open. It, Really, it looks like testicles. And, <laughs> and okay. she's like got a little dropper and it's scooping at her skin and she's just dropping milk and it's like lapping it up almost like a vacuum. So you called them puggles. Is that the name for a baby yes. echidna? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We call pug, puggle, we're pugs and pugs and beagle mixes. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But, no. Okay. So puggles, we're not talking about dogs. We're talking about baby echidnas. Yeah. I don't so they, they're mammals and they have beaks and they lay eggs. So yes. weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, another cool thing about platypus is that they're actually venomous. So they have spurs on their back feet and the venom is actually quite painful. With females, they fall off as they grow older, but the males use the spurs um, for fighting for territory and mates and all that kind of stuff. Are they ever, are they, are they aggressive with it? Like, do they come after Actually, people? Like, have, the, you, have, have you ever gotten, did you ever get stung? I did or get what do you, is it a stung? Is it a sting? Is that yeah, what you call it? Yeah, it is a poke, a sting, something yeah. like that, envenomated. So they do have a male there, Milsom, who is very, very handsome. And Jess has a good relationship with him. She went and she got him out of the box. And she has to put him on a towel because he got real naughty <laughs> and he started trying to like move my hand down and spur into the towel oh my at the same time. And so um, they actually, their, their bills feel like a very, very soft leather, like super soft leather, but they're actually very tough because they, I mean, they crush shellfish yeah. and stuff like that. So he pinched me, my finger or my hand, the top of my hand, and I, I left with a big bruise, and I was like, well, it's okay, because I got bruised by a platypus. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, so that was, but there were so many cool things. I started out on the bird team there, which I work mammals here, so that was definitely a departure for me. Yeah. But they put me on the helmeted honey eater round, which is a critically endangered species. There's only about 180 in the wild there. And uh, so I got to help work on the breeding program and get set up for the breeding season and all that stuff because um, they were coming right into the breeding season when I got there. And then I also got to do, they were, there was this um, researcher, a student, I think a master's student. He was doing a predator awareness study with them. So he had sort of a control group because in the past when they've released them, predators 
took him out pretty quickly. <laughs> so they brought a, um, a hawk from the bird show over and did predator awareness with these certain ones before um, they got released. Um, so I got to participate in that, which was really neat. And then I got to go on a release and we released seven uh, helmeted honey eaters back into the wild, which was really, really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's something that I think a lot of keepers, you know, not necessarily dream of, but it's something everybody wants to do. You know, we're working with these things and we want to see them go back to the wild. Most keepers think that, you know, if it would be a great world if we didn't have to have a zoos, but but we do. So being yeah. able to release something like that back to the wild must have been pretty incredible. Yeah, it was it was really, really neat. And um, yeah, and then they also, so there's this um, land uh, attached to the reserve or the sanctuary uh, called Corandirk. And um they actually use it to they grow eucalyptus out there for the koalas and all of that kind of stuff and they're actually working on building some more uh, breeding facilities for like the helmeted honey eaters they also breed orange-bellied parrots there which are also critically endangered i think there's like 60 or something like that if i'm remembering my numbers correctly so i got to help with set up for the breeding season for them too which was really neat and i got to handle them and which is really intimidating because I don't have a ton of confidence when it comes to birds <laughs> sure. and they're handing me these like really important birds. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah, that was, that was cool. And to see all of their, their process and everything. And then, so with the Corandirk, they, there's uh, wallabies pretty much all over. Right. But they want to get rid of, the wallabies because it's an inf it's a fenced in area and they will sort of breed very very quickly because of their their embryonic diapause and how quickly because they can have you know a joey at foot a joey in the pouch and then a joey in utero basically waiting to go so wow. they can really crank them out yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so rather than go in and just cull them all um which is oftentimes what happens because they over there they are kind of seen as a pest, they were catching up the wallabies in there and contracepting the females. And so I got to go with them one night and we went out and caught wallaby and um, took her in and they did the whole contraception and she actually had a joey in the pouch. And so I had to hold the joey while they did the procedure. How poor you. I know, it was so hard. <laughs> and then so it was uh, my friend Amy and I did it that night because they asked for volunteer keepers to stay um, after work, basically, and you were there till later. Sure. Um, but it was our job to help recover the animal. So that was cool. I got leeches for the first time. Uh, I was so excited. They thought I was so weird. I was like, ah, the leech. <laughs> but what, Did you get them in any embarrassing places? No, no, just on my legs. <laughs> and they were little. I was yeah. kind of disappointed. I was like, oh. I always think about, there's a movie, Stand By Me. Where they it was Will Wheaton and River oh, Phoenix, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they walk through the mosh and they get leeches. Yeah, <laughs> some uncomfortable spots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they were definitely laughing at me, but I was like, I will take a leech over a mosquito any day because leeches don't give you anything. Yeah, mosquitoes and, give you things. In fact, in a lot of places, they still use them for for medical practices yeah. too. So yeah. yeah, yeah, and then so after birds, I went to a, a mammal team. And then they also were really, really gracious and they welcomed me onto every single team there. And I got to spend at least a day 
everywhere and they made sure that I got to see everything I wanted to see and everyone was very very kind and showed me all the things I got to you know help train like flying birds for the bird show you know it was really really so not only that not only the fact you got to go and do cool things you like learned a ton of ton of new things that you'd never done before yeah I spent most of my time in their nocturnal house uh which was super cool because it's like there's mountain pygmy possums which are a critically endangered marsupial that hibernates and they live in alpine areas and I got to work with them and I got to work with Ledbetter's possums which are also another critically endangered thing and I got to help develop training plans for these animals and potteroos and uh, eastern barred bandicoots which are extinct in Victoria uh, in the wild That's and crazy. so they're working on a reintroduction project for them and I got to take care of them and handle them little things like uh, feather tail gliders that are like five grams <laughs> and they're so little but so neat like this marsupial you know and bilbies which are carnivorous marsupials like what that's so crazy <laughs> they look like crazy big mice rabbit things but they eat meat that's Such that's cool. so cool so it sounded like you sounds like you bounced around quite a bit did you have like any kind of like primary role and responsibility or were you just kind of learning and kind of use be used wherever they needed you to that to I, I spent the majority of my time at the nocturnal house okay once i got kind of settled i think i did two two or three weeks on the bird round and then they all like i would go back and help them with things um they opened brand new marsh exhibit. I got to go help take the birds and release them into this fantastic exhibit. So, you know, they all made sure I got to do all the cool stuff. But I did spend the majority of my time at Nocturnal House. In fact, they had a sort of short-term contract keeper who came in and they actually had me train him. (laughs) Like, help train him on the round. Craig, and he and I had a blast down there. We basically got paired up most of the time and we just... (laughs) <laughs> laugh and do all sorts of cool stuff with the animals so wow so they brought you in on an exchange you're working with animals you never worked for and you know you're training a new yeah. keeper <laughs> that's awesome yeah. well how about when, when you think back about your time there is there a particular like singular experience that kind of sticks out in your mind the most that you kind of treasure and you know something you kind of think back on when you think about your time at, at hillsville there's two and okay. that's the Let's first, do two. The first one is sitting with a platypus. Yeah. Because um, no one will get, you won't get to, probably won't get to do that again. And, and yeah. most people that are listening to this will never get to do that. Yeah. So. And I got to do it multiple times. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah, before I got in the water, <laughs> I had to like, because they, they pick up electromagnetic signals. And so I was so excited that I, I knew I would just be buzzing. So I, I told Jess, I was like, hold on, hold on. I need to take a couple breaths because if I get in the water like this, They're gonna it, yeah, it's not coming near me. Yeah. So I had to take a couple breaths and I got in, but like I was clenching my butt the whole time because I was so excited. <laughs> the other thing I would say was just the people and the camaraderie. Just everybody comes together and has coffee together in the morning. Everybody does things together people get along and everyone was so welcoming to me just made sure that everything possible I wanted to do it was all I had to do was ask wow. and just real love I felt very taken care of 
and it was people were just lovely. They made sure that I got the most out of the experience there, which was that's so cool. I was trying to kind of prompt you towards because you actually came home with a new tattoo. Oh yeah! And so I kind of was trying to prompt you about Lyra Burns a little bit, but so I'll just ask you flat out: Tell me about Lyra Burns and why they were special enough for uh, for a tattoo. So I knew I wanted to get a tattoo while I was over there because I wanted to kind of commemorate it and everything. Um, And so initially, I had thought about getting one that had platypus and a tazzy devil koala like a scene that sure. had all those mm-hmm. and i had heard that they had lyre birds there and i was excited because i don't know of anybody in the states that has lyre birds they're amazing they can say what they are first what's the what's, okay. the, what's the deal so with them? lyre birds they are the best mimics in the entire bird kingdom they can mimic not just other birds but like electric sounds, camera shutters, tires peeling out, humans. I mean, any noise possible, they can mimic it and they do. And so the males like build up this massive repertoire of all this, these sounds and sing them for the ladies. Sure. And they, during the breeding season, the males grow these beautiful lyrate feathers and these filamentary feathers. And it's almost... It's along the same line as like a um, a peacock, but it's in the shape of a lyre. That's why it's called that. So, um, and are then, they related to like pheasants or anything? Are they kind of like I their own thing? So. I don't know. Okay. I really don't know. I just looked at one. And I was like, it's got giant tail feathers, kind of like giant like, tail a, like a feather, like a pheasant, but huge. I don't know. Huge feet, like massive feet, because their role in the ecosystem is to sort of till up okay. the soil. Um, and they eat bugs and stuff like yep. that. But they have this one male there, Nova, who is like 27. And he is the one that David Attenborough went and <laughs> filmed. And apparently not very many uh, institutions can get lyrebirds to breed in captive situations. But he and his lady friend who passed away a couple years ago, I think, had, I think, nine wow. offspring. And yeah, so he was very well represented in the Australian population, but he just had the biggest personality. And I would go on my day off and just sit in this huge, it was a gigantic aviary. They called the RACB um, aviary. And I would just sit in there and listen to him chat and all the noises that he could make and everything. It was really cool. And so it became this like kind of obsession because where I was, was lyrebird habitat. So I was, I needed to go out and see a lyrebird in the wild. Like that, that was going to happen. And, um, I managed, I finally did. I saw a couple of them, but it became this like obsession of mine (laughs) while I was there was these lyrebirds. So when I found, uh, so I was looking for different tattoo artists because, you know, you should research these things. And I had, I wanted it to be very realistic. And the trouble with zookeepers is we know what they're supposed to look like. So if you get the proportions wrong and that kind of thing, we're going to be like, that doesn't look right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I needed a very, like, I didn't want a stylized one. I wanted a hyper-realistic tattoo. So I spent a couple days, like, significant periods of time just looking up, you know, searches for, like, best tattoos, tattooists in, in Melbourne and all this stuff. Anyway, I came across this guy, Joe Metrics, 
and he is amazing. And so I contacted him and he, so I contacted him in August and he didn't have any availability until the beginning of October. And at that point it was going to be a one shot deal because I couldn't come back and do multiple sittings. Right, so right, right, right. I couldn't do the full piece that I had planned. So I was like, all right, well, let's scale it back. And so I was trying to figure out which one, what, what was going to be the one. And I was the liar, Nova. I was just like obsessed with Nova. <laughs> and so I went in and I wasn't, I was thinking, you know, a couple inches tall or whatever. It's my whole thigh from like <laughs> my knee to my pelvic bone, but it is amazing. It is absolutely breathtaking in black and gray and completely realistic and just, just beautiful. Took seven hours straight. Oh my gosh. I got, I went into shock afterward, but it was totally worth it. Totally worth it. Even the, the guys in the shop were like, are you seriously still going? And <laughs> Uh, Joe kept looking at me and was like, are you all right? And I was like, don't just, just do it. <laughs> we, it's, it's now or never. Right. Like there's no stopping because right. I'm not coming back here anytime right. soon. Yeah. <laughs> it needs to be finished today. So yeah, that was, that was another big standout thing. I think, oh, and going to see the, they used to be called fairy penguins, but apparently that's not PC anymore. So now they're little blue penguins. Oh yeah. Yeah. Down at Phillip Island. That was, that was a lot of fun. I went with Reagan and Nicole, and uh, we had just a blast. Rupert, who is the uh, director of um, the sanctuary, knows the guy who's the director over on Phillip Island for their parks, hooked us up with like these extra sort of VIP viewing for the penguins. We got in free to their Antarctica exhibit at the Nobbies. They set us up. We got to go see some rehab facilities that they use to rehab penguins and whatnot for re-release. And we got to go see this other koala park and that kind of thing. And we got into all the stuff for free and got taken around and shown everything. And it was really cool. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Did anything that you learn or experience there, have you taken any of that back with you? to San Diego and does it has it changed like the way anything like the way you work or you know given you ideas for doing things either a different way or better way or anything like that yeah yeah I mean I definitely like I learned a lot from the people and like every everybody has a different sort of way of operating and stuff yeah. and I like I'll look I like this and I like that yeah. and I'll leave this and leave that I think the biggest thing that I took away from it in terms of work apart from all the species stuff um before i left i mean we we take our jobs seriously but i would sort of overstress myself about things that i'd had no control over right you know if i didn't agree with what someone else was doing or something like that training wise or whatever that it would really really affect me and i almost had this this thought of like well if i don't do it who's gonna right and i would put a lot of that on myself and stress myself out too so in preparation for leaving i had to like consciously step back and let other people fill in the gaps because i wasn't gonna be there like there i couldn't do anything about it i was gonna be away so i had i had to consciously take a step back and relinquish some of that like 
overbearing control (laughs) that I wanted to have. And, you know, being in sort of a more transition type spot for so long over there and going back to the newbie feeling, you know, because they don't, I mean, yes, I've been a keeper for a few years now, but they don't know me from the next person. They don't know what my experience is. You know, I mean, they've seen my resume, but that's it. They don't know how it works. So, you know, not anything against them at all, but they were, you know, like, here, you you do this. And you're like, I can do more than that, you know, (laughs) Um, but having to kind of go, oh, I'm I'm a newbie here and um, just swallow your pride. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of humble pie. And like you, you don't know anything about most of these species. So you need to just shut up and learn. That's what you're here for. And, you know, then I would hit moments where I would maybe disagree and be like, well, why aren't you doing it this way? And I'd be like, whoa, back <laughs> up. You don't you don't get to say that. You're like, not at your home zoo. Yeah, right you're yeah. a guest here yeah. and you're learning. So that that kind of stuff, it helped me kind of put any ego stuff in check and to relinquish some of that sort of overstressful control type things. Yeah, that's an important lesson to learn too. Because, <laughs> you know, there are, not to name any names, but we all know keepers that, you know, call the animals on their area their animals you know it's like these aren't these aren't your animals these are all of our animals these are the public's animals these are you know just because you're taking care of them right now and just because you do things a certain way doesn't mean that some way someone else does something that also doesn't work and it works better for them so yeah that's really cool um that 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 experience got you that that uh lesson so but did you make any new friends that you still keep in touch with or did any any keepers in particular that you want to give maybe a shout out to that made a particular impression on you Oh my gosh, there like there I'm sure were the list of names. There's so many, there's so many. I spent a significant amount of time with uh, Reagan and Nicole and Sean and Craig was my Naki house buddy. Right. Amy, Amy is an odd duck. Um, she's very sort of antisocial and like admittedly so, like proud of it. But I just for so she's one of those people that like you look at them and you're like, you're really cool and (laughs) I'm gonna be your friend. And so I just kind of like bullied her into being my friend. And I think she finally like she doesn't hug people. She doesn't like contact with people and that kind of thing. But when I was leaving she gave me a hug. Aww. So I was like, aha. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> nice. And then Karina and Jace were super, super kind to me. They took me out to look for lyre birds. And we had uh, my going away party slash Halloween party uh, at their house. So, I mean, they took great care of me. Um, Tamika was actually the first one to like, reach out to me. And then she had her baby. So she got very busy very quickly. So Mel was another one who was great. Christy, I spent... Then Bron, Bronnie, she's actually um, the bird supervisor, the bird team supervisor. Meg Lane, I spent a lot of time with her. And actually Brent, who is the first keeper exchange yeah, yeah. with Adam. He, I got to work with him on the bird. Oh, that's thing. awesome. So it was neat because I worked with Brent and then Christy, who also did an exchange with Lindsay. Christy came up and like the three of us got to have lunch and everything. And it was oh, like, that's like, so cool. Yeah. You know, zookeeper exchangees, three generations. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it was really cool. Just, I don't think people could have been any nicer. What do you think you're going to miss most about working there? 
you have anything in particular? The other people. Just the people. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, the That's animals. I animals were amazing. You the know? people. The people make everything. Yeah, yeah, they really do. Were there some things that you missed from home while you were away on your exchange? My cat. Your cat. Your <laughs> cat. Yeah, um, there were like definitely some things. Just you go to the grocery store or whatever, and you're like, "Why can't I find what I want?" You know, <laughs> you, so, didn't, you didn't want any marmite or yeah, veggie, huh? stuff like huh? that. Uh, little, just little things, and then I, you know, obviously miss my friends back. I was home. gonna say the right answer is me. Actually. Yeah, the right answer <laughs> I is miss, me. I did. I got pretty. I got pretty homesick about a month in. I and like. Like, to the point where I was, like, in tears. But, you know, I'm a big girl, so we don't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, then it's – three months is – it's a long time. It's not long, but it's a long time. Like, by the time I left, it it both felt like I had been there forever and, like, I hadn't been there very long at all. I was going to say, like, like, like three months in a new place. I kind of remember my first three months at San Diego and, like, after three months, you're just kind of figuring out how everything works. Yeah. And then for that, it's like, okay, well, now I got to go. I just yeah. figured it out. It's a whirlwind for so, sure. So just like for, for future keepers that might do an exchange, would you recommend doing long life? Like would six months be a better time frame or is three months like kind of a sweet spot? I mean, for me, three months was a sweet spot. Okay. I don't think I could have committed to a full six months. That becomes really, really significant. Um, and I know Laura... Weiner did six months, but she had, there were two Australian keepers who came. Mm. So one for three months and the other one for right, three right. months. But I, there, I, at this point in my life, like it's just three months was good. It was to the point where I was looking forward to coming home, but I had also, like, I was sad to leave. It was, I, I was talking to my friend there and I was like, I just, I think it's really beautiful that, I have found a place that makes me so sad to leave. Yeah. Like that's, that's awesome. That's really cool. So then follow up question, you know, hypothetically, if there ever was like a full time opportunity to go and work and live there, is that something you would take? I thought about it. Yeah. I definitely, it, it, it would be really hard for me to leave. Like my friends here are, are my family. Yeah. So it would be very, very hard to commit to leaving them. Um, that said, I know I would be very, very well taken care of over right. there. And, you know, it gives you a, gives you a reason, it gives people a reason to come, come to visit Australia. Yes. They come true, see true, so. true. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. We're going to think about wrapping up here pretty soon, but I, my, my last question for you on this subject is what's next? Cause I know you are a hyper motivated keeper who is always wanting to go <laughs> do big things and big projects. So I know you've got something you're thinking about on the horizon. I don't know I, if you want to jinx it, but I uh, talk about that a little bit. What's your next big trip that you want to do? Well, um, my my hope, uh, it's very early planning stages, is to go to Iceland and do some Arctic fox behavioral research. So there's uh, this really cool facility in the sort of northwestern part of Iceland uh, that they allow volunteers and to come do behavioral research on Arctic foxes. And I'm currently working on the Arctic fox husbandry manual for the zoo. And they've kind of become my sort of project. So I'm now, they're they're my my current liar bird, basically. I'm like obsessed with them right now. So the other thigh is getting a pair of Arctic foxes? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) 
So that's that's the plan. So what do you want to? What kind of research do you want to do with them? What do you want to do with artifacts? Well, my, I I'm actually kind of toying with the idea of trying to do a research project here that would it would it would be based here, but it would be collecting data from lots of different types of facilities. Right. And my question is, how does temperature affect behavior? Because they have such amazing adaptations for these ridiculous temperatures and habitats that like nothing else cruises around in and they just are fine. And so just kind of curious as to whether certain temperature ranges would indicate certain behaviors. So like would reading be more likely at this temperature range? Would, you know, how how does it affect? Does a cooler temperature indicate a higher activity level, which I would probably guess yes, but to be able to have that data. And so, you know, I think that would definitely help increase care for captive Arctic foxes. And so my, my kind of thought is that I would create a, a basic activity budget, basically create a database. And I actually have a friend who does like computer programming stuff and said he could create this nice and then i can find different institutions who would be willing to input data into this very easy spreadsheet because the more complicated you make it the less likely i think people would be willing to do that um and so get a nice cross-section of facilities in colder climates warmer climates all that kind of stuff and then compare that with wild data Um, that'd be awesome if you could like narrow down like Okay, this is the temperature range you need if you want to breed Arctic foxes, you know, yeah. and set up facilities like that. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty useful to to our field. So, so that's that's kind of my nice my, my thought. <laughs> nice, that's awesome. Everybody, go on a keeper exchange. Uh, it is a lot of work. I know you had to do a ton of work in terms of getting the visa and, and all of the kind of the background uh, work in terms of getting there, but it sounds like it was well well worth it. It was um, definitely so. so Listen to Ashley, go to Australia just to visit, go to other countries, do keeper exchanges, go learn from people that do things different than we do in the United States. So again, thank you guys. Thank you, Ashley, so much for coming and sharing your second story with us. And once again, guys, we need guests if we want to keep this show going. So please get in touch with me if you have any inclination at all to just come on and and share your story. And so thank you guys again for listening. And hopefully we won't have another couple of months until the next episode. Um, But thanks again for listening to the Zookeeper Stories podcast and uh, have a good day, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Zookeeper Stories podcast. I hope you learned something about zookeeping and had a few laughs along the way. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and Stitcher. It really helps me to grow the show and continue to improve. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can send an email to zookeeperstories at gmail.com or tweet me at zookeeperstory.